0: You're listening to the transformative podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna.
1: Welcome, everyone. My name is Ling Win wu and I work at Redset, that is hosting this fantastic transformative podcast. It is my greatest honor and pleasure to have my colleague today with us, Yanis Panayotidis. Yanis Panayotidis is a historian specializing in migration studies and the history of Russia and Germans. Since August 2020, Yanis Panayotidis has been the scientific director at the Research Center for the History of Transformation at the University of Vienna. Janis has published many books in German and English on the history of migration and is a public intellectual commenting on current issues related to migration. Welcome, Janis. Great to have you here.
0: Thanks for having me,
1: Lynn. So let me start with a general question. It seems to me that issues related to migration are everywhere. Think of how the notion of integration is mobilized as part of election campaigns in Germany. I'm thinking about the New Year's Eve events in Berlin. But also think of the challenges and opportunities that come with the arrival of Ukrainian refugees, the current crisis in Sudan and the resulting displacement of people. Why does migration matter not only for policymakers, but also for scholars? Why should historians more generally care about research on migration?
0: Well, as you said, migration is everywhere and migration is always and everywhere. This is really the first reason why people and why historians should care about this topic. But also because, in my opinion, migration is not just about migrants, it's actually much more about how societies in general deal with phenomena of difference, how they do or don't problematize diversity. If you look at such processes, negotiation of difference and of diversity in history, you automatically get into studying social history, Beyond the nation state, which is really one of the big paradigms of these past years and decades in historiography. So, leaving the container of the nation state, writing transnational history, there is by definition nothing more transnational than migration.
1: So, your books, The Unchosen Ones and Post Sovietische Migration in Deutschland, not only contribute to the discipline of history. They also are interdisciplinary and speak to issues of public concern, such as who is a citizen, who counts as German. Would you say that interdisciplinarity as part of a methodological skill set, mental horizon and an awareness of political stakes are part and parcel of the history of migration as a subfield?
0: Very much so. Um, In migration history, one engages with paradigms from different disciplines. For instance, transnationalism, for instance, diversity, those are all paradigms developed in sociology and social anthropology, which are in a sense, the lead disciplines in the study of migration. But as a historian, you take up these notions and you apply them to historical cases, while at the same time, which I think is the distinct contribution you can make as an historian to the field of migration studies more generally, is provide historical depth to the study of present migrations, because a lot of social science research on migration has a, a presentist bias, and there's always a tendency to discover new things, new challenges that have never been there before. And when you study migration history, you realize no, they have been there before, and people have dealt with these issues in the past. And while we all know as historians that you cannot learn from the past, directly, one-to-one, there are always lessons to be drawn. There's always orientation to be gained from past experiences. Another issue, of course, is the, let's say, the public, the political entanglements of migration research. The way, as scholars, we are sort of bound by the categories that political actors provide. The way the migration regime categorizes migrants very much affects the way we study migration. So we study refugees because they are labeled as such by the migration regime. I study ethnic German spätaussiedler, repatriates who are labeled as such by the regime. And part of our reflexivity as scholars, and this has become a very powerful paradigm in migration studies over these past years as well, is to deconstruct these notions and not to be bound by them here, once again, I think a historical perspective is very important to understand how certain categories have come about, how they are being developed, how they develop over time and how they can also be challenged.
1: So let me just like build on what you just said. How does your book, The Chosen Ones, what are the key takeaways from the book that help us disentangle or like construct historically certain notions? What was the function and the role of the German and Israeli migration policy and what continues until today to shape these in those countries.
0: In the Unchosen Ones, I compare the way West Germany and Israel received so-called co-ethnic migrants, so immigrants who are thought to be of the same nationality, so ethnic Germans or Jews. Basically in the book I look at the way these notions of Germanness and Jewishness are negotiated by bureaucracy. It's simple to say Germany received Germans and Israel received Jews, but how do states know who belongs to which category? That is a practice of categorization and it is a practice in which states are really forced to spell out what they think who belongs and who doesn't. It's really about drawing lines. You know, one takeaway for me was to see that these negotiations are actual negotiations. You know, it's not just simply the state saying A, B, C. It's not a simple one-way definition, but it is a process at which migrants themselves have a voice in which they get to provide certain narratives. Of course, they adapt their narratives also to the expectations of the migration regime, but that also puts limits to the power of the state to define and to classify, which in social science research, in my opinion, is often said as very absolute, you know. This, I think, is an important takeaway and it is something that has relevance for all sorts of similar processes of classification. And of course, there are also other scholars working along similar lines, for instance, with a view to refugees. So how does a refugee get to prove worthiness as a refugee? How do you get to prove legitimate reasons for receiving asylum and so on. Those are all interactive processes, not free of power. There's a huge power differential, but there's still migrant agency. I think this migrant agency is a very important insight of all sorts of migration research, historical and other, that has developed over these past decades.
1: And let me just go back to this one notion that we touched upon, which is this kind of specificity of the subfield of history of migration in terms of methodologies, a skill sets, kind of mental horizon. I would like to ask you about the history of the history of migration in German-speaking lands. Can we talk about a particular, a specific tradition of its own of the history of migration in German-speaking lands? Has there been any specific history of institutionalization of this subfield? This
0: is a great question and about some aspects of this, I would really like to write something one day when I have the time historical accounts of, you know, how migration research developed in Germany or German-speaking lands very often start with the import of American notions, American studies of immigration, and specifically the Chicago School of Sociology that studied immigrants in Chicago in the 1920s. But what all these accounts of the import of ideas miss is that the founders of the Chicago School, like Robert Ezra Park in particular, had studied in Germany, they had studied in Berlin, and they were very much influenced by uh, German sociology of the time, specifically by Georg Simmel, who developed still very relevant ideas about the position of the stranger, the foreigner, the marginality of migrants or of strangers more generally. And what's interesting here is that Simmel developed his ideas not with a view to immigrants as we see them nowadays, but with a view to Jews living in Germany at the time. So actually, there's a very interesting transfer of ideas from the position of Jews um, in 19th century Germany, where questions of integration and assimilation were actually very important. And these notions of assimilation traveled to the US, um, were applied to immigrants in the US, and traveled back to Germany as sort of part of what was then considered a more modern, more progressive view of migration studies, because at the same time there was a second indigenous tradition of migration studies, so to speak, in Germany, which developed after the Second World War with a view to the German expellees from the East. And a lot of this research was grounded in, let's say, problematic interwar scholarly context that were very much about folkish categories of Germanness and of Heimat and so on. But that, that also developed after the Second World War and interestingly was called refugee studies, Flüchtlingsforschung at the time, a term that was rediscovered in the 2010s, in 2015 in particular with the so-called refugee crisis. When refugee studies, Fluchtforschung or Flüchtlingsforschung came back to Germany without any awareness, I believe, for this particular history and this um, problematic legacy that is also involved there. So I think we have these very different strands coming together there. And then of course, one could say that until the 1990s, there wasn't much in terms of institutionalized migration research in Germany. A lot of the institutionalization actually happened first at the University of Osnabrück, where I used to work before, and where history was actually a driving discipline of this institutionalization of the study of migration. It has somewhat been sidelined by the social sciences over the past years, I believe, but there was a very strong impulse from the study of different types of immigration to Germany, and that was actually an important contribution of this historical study of migration to Germany, when the country was still sort of in denial in the 1990s about being a country of immigration, it was historians and specifically Klaus Bader the founder of the Institute in Osnabrück, who repeatedly emphasized that, no, Germany has always had immigration. It has also had emigration. That's also an important part of German history, but there's always been immigration and it's time to face up to the facts. And as I said before, maybe look at how migration was dealt with in the past to draw some important lessons for the present.
1: So I also know that you are working on a new book on racism against Eastern Europeans. And I'd like to ask you a bit of a provocative question. Are Eastern Europeans white? If so, how is their whiteness different from, let's say, Western Europeans?
0: Well, that is a question that I've been thinking about a lot over these past months and years. And I would say that Eastern Europeans are... They are lowercase white, so to speak, in the sense that they usually have light skin, a white phenotype, let's say. But of course, the question then is, does this also mean that they are uppercase white, so to speak, white with a capital W? So are they part, when they come to the West in particular, to Germany, let's say, and also to Great Britain, where this is a big issue, are they part of the dominant hegemonic white society. And in fact, I would argue that they are not, at least not as a matter of course. And this has to do with a long history of racism against East Europeans, which is a racism that does not use color as a marker of difference. And that's why actually why this terminology of whiteness is somewhat misleading in this case. So it's not that East Europeans were historically labeled as being people of color in whatever way. whiteness was not questioned. But the Nazis, for instance, still labeled Slavs as racially inferior, as subhumans, as they would call it. Again, without questioning their belonging to the white race, but there were important differentiations made in racist discourse about this white race. And this forms a background, a historical background, which should make it clear that whiteness is no simple matter here, that we shouldn't end up mixing the descendants of the perpetrators and of the victims of Nazism in the same category of white people nowadays. I think this is a very important baseline to draw here. But of course, sort of once we've drawn this line, we can start looking at, at the way this phenotypical whiteness, so the lowercase whiteness, how it affects life chances in society, for instance. Because I think it's very clear that that phenotypical difference matters a lot, especially for the everyday experience of racism. When we talk about racial profiling, a dark-skinned person is in much greater danger, as we know, of being targeted by the police, for instance, whereas a white person is not. So there is, of course, this phenotypical difference matters a lot. And so East Europeans are in a different position in Western societies, especially over the generations. So once they lose their accent, for instance, that still marks first generation immigrants as foreign and the second generation has much greater chances of passing as fully white, as becoming invisible, as it were, which is different for people of color. There are the basically these two dimensions. And I think the dynamics of it, the way this, this position of East European migrants as, you know, as white, but not quite as Ivan Kalmar from the University of Toronto called it, how this is negotiated in society. I think this is a very important process to understand and to decipher the way in which a diverse society nowadays can actually be built and how it functions effectively.
1: And this kind of leads me to my last question. Most new research avenues don't spring out of nowhere, but build and often contest existing paradigms and scholarly debates. What are the connections between your current research on racism against Eastern Europeans and fields such as critical race theory and whiteness studies?
0: The connection is definitely there. And it's kind of similar to what I said before. As an historian working on migration, you do work with these paradigms developed with a view to the present mostly. So you engage with this kind of social science discourse and with the categories, but you try and add certain layers and important nuances to it. And so, I mean, critical race theory and whiteness studies, of course, they do care about history. They're very much actually founded on a particular view of history, which emphasizes the global color lines of the past and also of the present, which emphasizes the history of colonialism and slavery, which is all very important and actually foundational for understanding the history and the present of racism. But it's a view of history that is limited to these contexts, to what nowadays we would perhaps call the Global South. My take would precisely be to take up inspiration from that and to broaden the view and say, well, what what about Eastern Europe? How is Eastern Europe positioned in all of this? And this is a topic that has gained a lot of traction, especially in the context of the Russian war against Ukraine now, and how spaces like Eastern Europe, like Ukraine in particular, are positioned in a history of colonialism that is coming both from the West, so from Germany, which tried to colonize the East in the 20th century, but also from Russia as a sort of Eastern empire, if you will. So there are still very interesting stories to tell here that will add new dimensions to our discussions of colonialism and racism in history and present.
1: Great. Thank you so much for this really inspiring and rich conversation. You're
0: welcome. It was great talking to you. You have been listening to the Transformative Podcast, produced by RETZ in Vienna.